You know, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament was a man by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel spoke to the people of God who were in exile in Babylon. And the reason the people of Israel, God's chosen people, were taken captive was due to their sin of rebellion and disobedience to God. And they turned away from God and worshipped the false gods of the other nations. Now, one of the main things Ezekiel was called to do was to remind them of the sins of Judah, which had brought them into exile. And among those sins which caused that 70-year exile in Babylon was one which he points out in his prophecy in chapter 18, where twice in that chapter he says this, Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Israel had accused God of being unjust, accused God of being unfair. And that sin, well, Israel, uh, Ezekiel said, that is one of your sins for accusing God. It's a grave sin to accuse him of not being fair. And that sin over the centuries has been committed over and over and over again. People who, when things in their life don't go just the way they want it to go or think that it should go, or the way that they would like them to go, tend oftentimes to accuse God of not being fair. Now, when somebody else seems to prosper and we suffer, it's easy to look at God and say to Him, you know, it's, it's, it's not equal, you're not being fair, why, why is that happening? It's not just, it's not right in, in the treatment. So it certainly wasn't the first time, nor will it be the last time that that takes place, that God is being accused of being unfair or unequal in his treatment of his people. He's talking about his people here. And it's that very issue which is a theme of our passage here this morning as we look into Matthew. And it's interesting to note that a number of times throughout Scripture, God defends himself against the accusation of injustice. He doesn't usually have to, he doesn't feel he has to defend himself about anything else, but he does for the accusation of being unjust. And at least half time, half, uh, half a dozen times in the New Testament, um, we see that he is defending himself. God is holy. He will be seen as holy. And in his holiness, he is always a just God. R.C. Sproul once says, A holy God is both just and merciful, never unjust. He also says sometimes God is non-just, but never unjust. Psalm 145, verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. And Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4 says, He is the rock. His works are perfect and all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. He defends Himself against this accusation by saying He is no respecter of persons, which means that He, he treats all people the same. He treats them equally. Now certainly when it comes to His own people, His own chosen people, and when it comes to applying the benefits of salvation, there is absolutely no inequity. 
So it's, it, it, it is sin for believers to accuse God of being unfair in his treatment of his own. And that's the truth as illustrated in the parable here, beginning in Matthew chapter 20. As we move, continue to move through Matthew, we're actually going to look at the last verse of chapter 19 and then go through the first 16 verses of chapter 20. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon. And did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when they came, uh, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And they re- when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, do you see what Jesus did here? He bracketed this parable with the same statement. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. That set of brackets defines what the parable in the middle is all about. It's all about being last and being first. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to look at four things. I want us to look at the proverb that Jesus states, and then the parable itself, which actually illustrates the proverb, then I want to look at the meaning of the, uh, of the parable and then pull out some of the principles that we can hang on to as we leave this morning. So we start by looking at the proverb. A proverb, if you look it up, is a truism. It's a short, pithy, popular saying of ancient and unknown, usually origin, expressing wisdom. That's a proverb. And it seems that Jesus must have coined this particular proverb because we can't uh, find it anywhere before Jesus' time, but it's certainly been used a lot ever since. Now, this proverb is kind of a riddle, which uh, makes you ask, well, what, what, is, what does that actually mean? What's he actually saying? And this proverb has actually baffled some Bible students through the years, but I think it's fairly clear when we understand what Jesus is saying in the parable. Now, the first thing that's always used to come to my mind was picturing a long line of people. 
And you take the first person and you put them back in the back of the line. And then you take the last person and bring them up in the front of the line. And we talk about pride and we talk about humility and, and get into all of that. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. It can't be because that would then be what? Unjust. It wouldn't be fair. wouldn't be right. So we need to be thinking of it in terms of running a race. The Apostle Paul used that image a number of times in his writings. Um, If you've got two people running a race, or 10, 12, it doesn't matter, how can the last be first and the first be last? The only possible way is if they cross the finish line in dead heat. I mean, if you're last, you're last, right? (laughs) That's normal. But if you're last and first, and if you're first and last, that means you end in a dead heat. The only way that can happen is if everybody finishes the same. It's actually very simple if you look at it that way. And that's the intent of the parable. We're going to see that in a moment. It's to demonstrate one simple point, and that is if everyone will finish equally. That God is no respecter of his own people, and God treats all of his own equally. So with that in mind, I I think the the parable becomes very clear, and it's uh, actually a fascinating illustration that Jesus uses here. And verse 1 gives us the setting of the story, for the kingdom of heaven. That's how he starts, starts out, for the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the spiritual realm where those who are children of God exist, those who have already come into the kingdom. This is a realm of salvation where God rules over those who are already in the kingdom. And he's saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. It's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So here's a man who apparently owns a large estate, and part of that large estate, he's got these vineyards. Um, Now, the picture he's drawing here didn't take a lot of imagination for his disciples or any of the people there in Israel to, to imagine or to understand. To the Jewish listeners, this was something that could easily be uh, they could easily picture in their minds. In fact, in the in the fertile areas in the in the uh, Sharon Valley and the Jordan Valleys, the grain field that that's what was most common to be grown in the valley areas. But on the mountain slopes, which were almost everywhere in the land of Israel, vineyards were the most valuable properties and actually required the greatest amount of labor. The steepness of the slope in which the uh, vines grew uh, grew best made the work uh, much harder. They had to put in terraces. The terraces had to be flat. They had to take all of the rocks out. Uh, There's just a lot of work that went into preparing a vineyard. And then along those terraces, uh, hand-laid stone walls were often built to protect from erosion. Even the fertilizer and additional soil would probably have to be carried on the backs of men up these slopes, up these terraces to where they needed them. And then in the spring, they would prepare the soil. In the summer, they pruned them and tied the branches. In September, the grape harvest would, uh, would come. And then shortly after the harvest, that was when the rains came. And if the harvest is not gathered quickly, the rain comes and destroys everything. It just wipes everything out. So the harvest time is crucial. And they didn't have enough workers on their full-time staff to take care of the harvest quickly. They didn't need that many people uh, for the rest of the year. So they needed quick part-time labor. Every available man had to be hired to get him into the harvest in order to get the harvest um, before the rains came. Now, the Jewish workday started at 6 in the morning, 
and went to six in the evening. Twelve-hour work days, six days a week. So at the start of a long work day, the owner went down to the local 7-Eleven and found laborers there for his harvest. They'd be, there'd be a local place where, where people looking for work would hang out. Now this is an important historical note, by the way, here, because hired laborers in ancient Israel were kind of the lowest people on the totem pole when it came to the uh, economics. Uh, the lowest class of workers, the, the lowest paid. They were basically unskilled, untrained, unemployed, except for a day at a time. They were day laborers. Life for them was pretty desperate and unsure because they had to work in order to eat. If they didn't work, they, they wouldn't have food for themselves. They wouldn't have food for their families. Now, interestingly, as we look back in Scripture, um, we find that God himself was very much aware of this particular group of people, people on that lower level of the social ladder. And he was so concerned about the poor and their needs that in the Old Testament there are actual laws that pertain to the care of day laborers. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13, it says, Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. In other words, for the day he worked, he had to be paid that evening because that was the only way he could go and feed his family. He couldn't carry over the wages until the next day and pay double the next day. And then in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 15, it says, Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. That's strong. According to the law, it was actually a sin if you did not pay your day laborer before sunset. The disciples could easily picture that scenario there. These people were struggling. God saw, God was, took that very seriously. And it was a vivid story that happened over and over again in almost any Jewish town that was there. So this landowner went out early in the morning before 6 o'clock to hire these laborers for his vineyard. And he, he would go to the marketplace of the town nearby. And verse 2 says, He agreed to pay them a denarius for a day and send them into his vineyard. Now, a denarius is not a normal day worker pay. It is far better than that. It is actually a very generous wage for them. It was a standard pay for a skilled employee. It was actually a standard pay for a Roman soldier. So the landlord was not being a cheapskate here. Uh, and both owner and workers agreed on the wage. They were happy with that. And so he sent them into the vineyard at 6 a.m. to begin work which was expected. That was normal. Well, three hours later, he realizes that he's going to need more workers to get the work done. And in verse 3, it says, About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, You also go, go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Now, at this point, there's no negotiation of wages because those that had been left in the marketplace were standing around doing nothing, knowing that if they hadn't been picked at 6 o'clock in the morning, the day was done. There, there was, the, the opportunities were gone. There was no chance of work. On top of that, the word had probably gone around that this man from this vineyard was a very generous man. He, he paid generously. 
What an opportunity. This rarely happens. Sorry. Um, so the, when, the, the, when the landowner said, I'll pay you what is fair, they assumed that he was going to do good by them. He was a generous man. Well, it, it gets to be noon, and the landowner still needs more workers. Verse 5 says he went out again about noon and about three, so two more times in the afternoon, and did the same thing. For that last batch of workers then, they're only going to be there for three hours of work left in the day. But what's most amazing is that we find in verse 6 that at about 5 in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And they said, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So at 5 in the afternoon, he's hiring these workers for one hour. One hour of work, and they'd been in the marketplace all day long, hoping against hope, which there was very little of, that they would find some work. And they'd, um, they, they were dreading that evening to go home and say, sorry, honey, nothing today. They're desperate at this point, and the landowner sends them, go out in my vineyard and work, I'll pay you whatever is right. Said, okay, we'll do it. And then in verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. This man is going to follow the prescription of the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24. The workday has come to an end, and he calls his foreman, instructs them to get all the workers in a line and pay them what they're owed. And then he says to the foreman, and this is the key that kind of unlocks this, this whole parable, Pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So line them up, starting with the ones that have only worked one hour, then three hours, then six hours, etc., until we get to the 12 hours. And here's where the uh, proverb and the parable kind of come together. Verse 9 tells us that the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So for one hour of work, these guys received one denarius. Then the rest of them got paid. Those who started at work at 3 o'clock, those who were hired at noon, those who got picked up at 9, and finally those who were fortunate to have gotten work at 6 a.m., which they were all excited about at the time, uh, and had worked 12 hours all day long. And I can imagine that at, at the beginning, um, those who had been working 12 hours, they were noticing who was getting paid what. And they were getting their hopes up. I mean, if the man who, was pay, uh, who only worked one hour got paid a denarius, and I can see their minds going and their calculations going, this is going to be amazing. A denarius a day was great, but a denarius an hour? That, that, that was just beyond imagination. This is, this is going to be amazing. Now, now, we can only assume that those who started at three and noon and nine also only got paid a denarius. Because in verse 10, we say, So when, they came, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. That's logical. Normal thought process. But each one of them also received a denarius. Was that fair? <laughs> There's nothing fair about that, right? 
they were shocked. I mean, they, they were upset. And I, I'm sure that as, as they were, as the line was going forward, the, the one-hour people got a denarius, the three-hour people got a denarius, and they're thinking, what's going on here? The six-hour people got a denarius. Something's not right here. I, I can hear these 12-hour people kind of mumbling and grumbling and getting, getting their dander up here. And verse 11 says, when they received it, they began to grumble. The Greek word is gagonzo. Uh, they grumbled against the landlord. That's a, what they called an onomatopoetic word. They mumble, they grumble against the landowner and said, Hey, these who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the week and the heat of the day. Now, literally in the Greek, the heat of the day was referring to very hot, dry east wind that scorched and dried up everything. No wonder they were upset. They had been working 12 hours like that, probably four or five of those hours from probably at least 11 to three or four, the hottest part of the day. And these other guys, you know, they worked an hour and that was in the cool of the evening. The, the sun had started going down. It was getting cooler. These guys were riled up. They were upset. And apparently one man was bold enough to be the spokesman to express their collective grievances. And the, um, so they come, and he, he complained about it, and the reply is, is kind of great in verse 13. The landowner calls him friend. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Friend, is, it's a term of endearment, my dear friend. It was a special term of endearment. So he kind of diffused their anger by reaching out with that term of endearment, friend, then graciously remind them of their agreement, of their contract that they had made from the beginning. And he, he used logic, he used re- a reason. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Well, obviously the answer is, well, yes, verse 2. So he says in verse 14 and 15, take your pay and go, I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? In the beginning, they were excited that he was so generous. Now, not so much. And in saying this, he's saying that he is not being unfair. He's not being unjust. They all received what was promised. They were all paid in full by the one who had the right to give what he wanted, and then he gave it. Now, it's true they hadn't all worked all day long, but listen to this. They hadn't all worked all day, but they all had the same need. They all had the same need. They all had families to feed. They all had food to buy. They all had clothes to buy. They had rent to pay, and the landlord met their landowner, excuse me, met their whole need with his generosity, all of them. Are you envious because I'm generous, he asked? Does my compassionate kindness to others irritate you? What an indictment. And then the Lord repeats the, the, the proverb, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Everybody finishes the same. Everybody got the same so we understand the proverb and we understand how the parable illustrates that proverb so what's the point jesus is trying to make here what's the spiritual lesson for us well 
It's not a teaching that Jesus is giving on economics. It's not a teaching on wages. It's not a teaching on employee benefits. It's not a teaching on how how to handle grievances. It's a parable, actually, that illustrates the kingdom. You remember as he started this parable, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. So let's break that down. What are the different aspects of this parable? First of all, the landowner, landowner is God. The vineyard is the kingdom of heaven. The laborers are the believers in the kingdom. The workday is a present time that we are living in. The evening is eternity. The wage is the gift of eternal life. And the foreman, who's the foreman? (laughs) Jesus. He is a foreman who is given the responsibility of rewarding his own. And all that comes together to mean this, that all who come into Christ's kingdom to serve him no matter how long you've been working no matter how short no matter how hard no matter how easy the circumstances might have been will in the end equally receive the same reward and what is that reward it's eternal life it's eternal glory it's eternal christ likeness those who come first to god will receive no more than the ones who come last Those who come last will will receive no less than the ones who come first. Jesus is saying that the eternal benefits of the kingdom of God are the same for all, regardless of when you enter the kingdom. That ought to be an encouraging thing for us. Now, life may be inequitable. Life may be unfair, but God isn't. God never is, and eternity won't be either. Every believer, no matter when they came to Christ or how they served Him or how long they served Him, will, as James tells us, receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. They will receive the crown of righteousness that Paul talks about in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Isn't it amazing that in God's righteousness and in God's justice, the thief that was hung on the cross next to Jesus would receive the same reward as the apostles that preached and worked and suffered all their life long? Same reward. The same eternal life will be given to the sinner who repents on his deathbed as is given to the missionaries of old who spent 40, 50 years suffering in very hostile lands for Christ. God is not unequal. He is not unjust. We're all going to enter into It's the same eternal life. What glory that will be, the old hymn says. Now you may be thinking, well, I I seem to remember that the epistles talk about rewards for service. What about those? Well, that's true, but that's not what this parable is about. This is about the the, uh, reality of eternal life. Rewards are discussed later, but they're not on the basis of time spent or service uh, spent or on the basis of how difficult your service may have been for Christ. No, they're, on the, they're actually on the basis of motive. How do we know that? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring the light, uh, excuse me, He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive the praise from God. Remember Peter's question from last week? We've left everything to follow you, he said to Jesus. What then will there be for us? It's like saying we've worked all day long. We've worked for 12 hours in the heat of the day. What's in it for us now? 
Well, when all is said and done, Jesus says, you'll get eternal life, just like everybody else. What does that mean for us? It means that all believers will equally be given the blessedness of glory. We'll all live in the Father's house. No one is going to be put in a house across the track somewhere or down the road somewhere from the mansion. We'll all be part of the bride decked out for the bridegroom. We'll all inherit the whole inheritance. We'll all become like Christ. We'll all live forever in the celestial city. We'll all manifest the glory of God. It's an amazing thing if you think about it. Now, as we wrap up this message here today, let's take a look at a few principles that we can draw out of this message. I've only got nine. Hang in there. (laughs) Trust me. Number one, God initiates salvation sovereignly. God initiates salvation sovereignly. In a moment uh, uh, where we're going to be singing, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is His to give. It belongs to Him. This is kind of a theme song that we've been using uh, last Sunday and this Sunday. We see that in the whole parable. He, he came into the world. He came into the marketplace of people and selected those He wanted to come into His kingdom. And Jesus said that to the apostles in John chapter 15. If you remember, you have not chosen me, but what? I have chosen you. He picks who He wants. Secondly, God establishes the terms. He set the terms and the workers agreed. That was a difference between them and the rich young ruler who wanted to set his own terms to get into the kingdom. The laborers came on his terms, on God's terms. The terms of the gospel have been established. God set them and it's through Christ alone. You come on his terms and his terms alone. Thirdly, God is continually calling people into his kingdom. All day long, the landowner was calling people to come and work in his vineyard. The day is our present time. There is beginning, there's a beginning and there's an end to the day. And the work is continuous. The work of redemption goes on and on and on. There's an old hymn that says, Work for the night is coming when man's work is done. Work for the night is coming. Until the night comes, God continues to go into the marketplace of humanity, selecting those he wants to come and work. Fourthly, God redeems those who are willing. And that's the other side of that that whole sovereign choice. It's hard for us to understand the sovereign choice aspect. But people that are willing, you see, they, they were there. The people were there. They were available. They were willing. They knew they were dependent. They knew they had nothing apart from this. They weren't rich. They weren't self-sufficient. They were not satisfied or, or having a, a false sense of security that we talked about last time about uh, the way it is oftentimes with the rich. They were poor. They were meek. They were beggars, all without resources, who were willing to receive whatever the master would give. It takes our man, minds back to the Beatitudes. Fifthly, God is overflowing with compassion. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, God says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In Psalm 103, verse 8, we read, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Think of that in the terms of this parable that we just looked at. Does the landowner of this vineyard not know how many people it takes to harvest? 
I mean, seriously, think about that aspect. He's been doing this for years. Has he just forgotten? He knows how many rows of vines he has and how many plants he has. He's got, he's, he's got the ability to do the math to figure out how many workers that he would need to come and to, to pick all the grapes that were necessary. So why in the world does he keep going back to get more workers? Not because he needed them. The only answer to that is that he is representing God in this parable, and God is a God of compassion. And he's coming back not because he needs more workers, but because he has such compassion on them, and he doesn't want to lose one of them. Number six, all who came into the vineyard worked. All who came into the vineyard worked. Work. There were no deadbeats. There were no freeloaders, no self-proclaimed supervisors or delegators. And what is that work? The work is evangelism. The work is evangelism. That's what it is, a harvest. They went out into the harvest field. And if you think about it, that's all the work that we have while we're here that we can't do in heaven. Have you thought about that? I mean, when we get to heaven, we can praise in heaven. We can worship in heaven. We can live our holy lives completely holy in heaven. We can fellowship in heaven. There's going to be wonderful fellowship in heaven. But we're not going to be harvesting. We're not going to be evangelizing. That's the work here. And God, the landowner, expects everybody to be working for him and to do it with all of our strength as unto the Lord. Number seven, God gives all of us more than we deserve. You know that, right? God gives us more than we deserve. The people who worked 12 hours didn't deserve a denarius. That was a very generous wage, if you remember. The rest certainly didn't deserve it either. So everybody's really, again, in the same boat. Nobody deserved it. There's really no argument here about the generosity of the landowner. God gives us more than we deserve. And if you gave the Lord 60 years of service, would you deserve heaven? No. You wouldn't deserve it any more than a person who only gave 15 minutes of service. Why? Because salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. It's not something that we can demand. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we can earn. It's a gift by God's grace. Number eight, we see that humility and a sense of unworthiness is the only right attitude to have. There's no place for envy. There's no place for jealousy. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous to say, well, I, I hope when I get to heaven, I'm going to get more, more rewards than you do. <laughs> That's just ridiculous on the face of it. There's no place for us to act like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. In uh, Luke chapter 15, his brother comes home from a life of sin and debauchery, squandering all of his inheritance, and he repents, and the father grows this, uh, throws this great feast. And what's the uh, uh, older brother's attitude? He gets angry. He gets jealous. The older brother had no reason for jealousy because the truth of the matter is everything the father gave the prodigal, the other brother had all along. The father just gave one feast to the prodigal. The older brother was eating like that every day. There's no place for jealousy. There's no place for envy. There's only a place for humility that recognizes our absolute unworthiness. The number nine, and this is really the main point, our eternal reward is by grace. Our eternal reward is by grace. Length of service, difficulty of service really means nothing. 
Works are irrelevant in the matter of eternal life. Well, what about our crowns? I want my crown. Well, you'll get the crown, which is life. You'll get the crown of righteousness. You'll get a crown which is incorruptible. We'll all get that. Well, what about my rewards? You know what's interesting about the rewards? When we've gotten them all, however God wants to do that, if we understand the 12 elders correctly as you get into Revelation, we're just going to take them all and throw them at his feet anyway. And then we're all back to being equal, being on par, in a dead heat. The first will be last, the last will be first. That's amazing grace. God's ways are always equally, equally gracious, right? We don't deserve any of it. We just need to be humble and thankful for all that grace. And the truth is, in the end, it puts God's great grace on display. He is glorified in his generosity. We are the recipients of divine, sovereign grace that treats all sinners equally with undeserved grace. I want us to stand this morning. We're, we're going to continue praising the Lord for his justice and his grace. That he, salvation that is his to give and that he gives so generously. And we're going to sing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand.